0: Your host Francois Forster, and I will guide us on this journey. Now, our guest for this week is Jonathan Baron. Jonathan is an auditor and, and partner at BKD Auditors in Potchefstruem, and also, not so coincidentally, a good friend of mine as well. Now, Jonathan has a, a great interest in structural planning of, of people's finances, uh, your risk. To, to creditors, third parties, and then also obviously how to to maximize or maybe minimize your, your taxes uh, now and obviously part of your estate planning and things like that. Jonathan also has taken a great interest in property investments. Um, he has done a few of him on his own as well and then also made a few mishaps and mistakes and we'll delve into that as we go on. So help me welcome Jonathan Baron. Jonathan, welcome. Uh, Good to have you here with us. Thank you for for joining us. Thank you, Francho. And yeah, I'm honored to be your first guest. Um, I must say, and and I just want to take a a little moment here. um, This being uh, our first podcast is just a... Such a great moment and a great honor, a dream that's been coming for, for quite a few years. We, we had a chat um, leading up to this, how we <laughs> I was in the in the coffee business for a while and, and we tried to get it going there. Uh, and now we, we're suddenly there. We're starting this podcast and you will be forever <laughs> our first guest. Um, so welcome and let's get into it now. I thought a, a great topic to start us off today, and it's a hot topic uh, currently in, in South Africa on a chilly morning in in struim And I don't want to get into politics that much, but um, solar panels and the current situation that we find ourselves in in South Africa and The National Treasury recently said, okay, listen, we're happy to to give you a rebate if you install solar panels at at your house. Um, And myself, and and I think a lot of other people jumped at the opportunity and, and installed solar panels. But I must admit, uh, I don't really know what that entails. Um, how do you get money back? How does it work? Uh, when will you get the money back? What must be in place for you to, to get the rebate or get uh, cash or, yeah, if, if you can shed some light and, and tell us
1: how it will work, it will, it will help. Okay, yeah, so um, obviously from a, a national perspective, um, there's a desperate need. Um, for more electricity to be um, generated in South Africa. Um, And in line with this, the National Treasury then decided to incentivize private households to uh, make an investment into generating their own electricity, at least during the daylight hours. Um, So what the National Treasury has done is to say, okay, we will give you an amount um, back on your taxes if you install generation, solar generation capacity. How it works is that, um, and I think maybe the first important thing about this, yeah, is the fact that the rebate that you can get is only on the solar panels. It is not for the inverter. It is not for the batteries. It is not for the installation costs. So it's solely on the solar panels themselves. These solar panels need to be 275 watts or more of generation capacity, and they need to be installed in the tax year, one March, 2023 to 28 February, 2024, or 29 February, 2024, I suppose, next year is a leap year. Um, You, need to have these panels installed by an accredited installer. And in order to claim your rebate from SARS, you then need to have three documents. The first document would be an invoice that specifies the costs of these solar panels separately from any of the other costs for the installation. So that's very important. The second one is the proof of payment for this invoice. So you need to prove to SARS that you have paid for these solar panels. And the third one is a what we call a COC or a certificate of compliance from a person, an electrician probably who is qualified to sign this off to say that your installation complies with the requirements from an electrical point of view. And that will also give SARS an indication as to when the installation happened, because obviously it's important that it happens in this year. Now, I've had a few questions about, you know, is it really only gonna be for this year or will it be extended? The answer is we don't know. I think if you want to do a solar installation, do it sooner rather than later. Um, From a rebate point of view, but I think also, you know, just from a a general convenience point of view, I think um, it's the right time is there a cap on the amount that you can claim yes so the amount that you the maximum amount that you can claim is 15000 rand and you can claim 1 quarter or 25% of the amount that you have spent on these solar panels so if you do an installation of let's say 40000 rand then you will be able to claim 10000 rand 60000 rand would give you 15000 but anything over 60 you'll still be capped at the 15,000 Rand. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors who made
0: this podcast episode possible. BKD Auditors and Orca Solar. I've got just another question on that. In terms of, I I think I read that they keep referring to to individuals. So let's say my wife and I uh, live in the same house, but we've got separate invoices, separate proof of payments, is it per household, per, per, per house? I, I don't know, we didn't necessarily talk about this beforehand or prepare on that. Um, or so that you can claim double, um, if both you and your wife uh, install at the same house, uh, 60,000 worth of, of solar panels, or would, would the, they catch on to that? Yeah, I think that's an
1: interesting one. Um, <clears throat> so, it, it is per residential unit as I have it. <clears throat> so I don't think you would be able to install, um, let's say f- two, from two parties at one residential unit. For me, it's it's
0: interesting that SARS would require a COC to be submitted as well to get
1: the rebate. What might be the reason for that? So I think SARS with the COC, um, because that is done by an external third party, it wouldn't be done by your installer. SARS has an external verification of the actual date of the installation of these panels, which would then you know, obviously indicate to them that the panels were installed in the time window that they've given for the rebate to be claimed. Okay. And then
0: specifically on the rebate and this is the, the tax things that, that I don't always understand and it's, so it's for me and, and I would believe a lot of the viewers as well. The rebate, will that form part of your yearly tax return and you will just get a, a discount on your tax or would it be money that you will actually get back from SARS regardless of
1: your uh, taxes that, that you file? So what will happen is if you are a let's call it a normal taxpayer so typically a salaried employee or somebody along those lines Um, what will happen is that you will get all of your documents together and unfortunately only next year in July when the filing season opens for the 2024 tax year you will be able to submit your return and in your return there'll be a place where you can fill in the fact that you've installed solar and how much you think your deduction should be. SARS will probably then, once you um, render your return to them, query this, and you'll have to send them the relevant documentation. And after that, SARS will then, depending on how the balance of your return obviously looks, either pay you out your 15,000 or deduct it from any uh, debt that is still owing to them. If you are a provisional taxpayer, so you've got your own business or there's, there's some other income that you're earning in your own name, you are already allowed to deduct the 15,000 Rand or up to 15,000 Rand from the first provisional tax return after you have made the installation. So theoretically, a provisional taxpayer who does an installation now would actually already receive a part of the benefit in August when he or she renders there provisional tax
0: return. Okay, that, that is quite in- interesting. Um, I wanna, wanna tie in here with, with the whole COC scenario and something that I quite see quite often in, in my, my day job as a transfer attorney is obviously with, with every transfer we usually in the contract specified, we, we need a electricity COC, certificate of compliance for, for the electricity. And what's happening now is you see a lot of fly-by-night uh, solar installers, installers. Currently, everyone is a, is a solar installer. So whoever, they, they get this contractor, Facebook page, I'm looking for, for solar panels. And then install the solar panels at a point in the future, they sell their house and we need the COC, electrician goes out and then the electrician finds that it is an absolute mess. And with this installation, the person didn't didn't get a COC. Um, And so, Yes, it's important for, for Sasha, but I think for, for the listeners and the viewers, it's so important to, to realize whenever you get a solar panel installation to make sure that you get your certificate of compliance. It's an additional or alternative power supply. And for that, you must, must, must get a, a COC. Um, <clears throat> and that's on top of your normal house COC. And I just want to add there that as with now with, with the rebate, it's not applicable to inverters and batteries. So if you've not just got an inverter and battery installation, it's not necessary for, for a COC. So um, just remember that it's, it's very important. And I want to touch on that as well. Um, just an honorable mention to another good friend of mine, uh, Farnes Boertan, who is a consulting engineer. And he told me the other day, and I slipped up on, on that as well. Is we all if you do a solar panel installation, it's so important to make sure that your roof structure is is strong enough. Um, there's there's a method they calculated per square meter the amount of weight that your roof can carry, uh, so that you make sure of that before you do a solar panel installation. Because once again. People that install solar panels, I don't. They, they come, they install, and, and they go. So, and you might get into trouble in in the future, especially in a place like Podstrum, with our summer hailstorms and things like that. If if the weight builds up, it, it could be a problem. So, with solar panels, just just a few uh, notes that that we need to make. Um, In our prep for this conversation, we quickly touched on a gray area and which might still be a a gray area. And if you don't have a a formal answer, that's that's fine. But solar panels, rebate, uh, residential or personal property, what will happen with, let's say you've got a a rental property or rental residential property and, will the rebate be applicable to that? Or let's say you've got an Airbnb and you're making an income from this property, but
1: it's a residential property? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, um, Francois, and I think uh, you know there's still a bit of clarity that we, we need on that. Um, the 15,000 Rand rebate is very much one that is aimed at individuals and um, and primary residences, uh, it does seem that SARS has some plans to also allow this for um, rental um, properties. I think maybe um, just one step back, you do not need to be the owner of the property at which these solar panels are installed. So if you are a tenant, you can have them installed in the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the building that you're staying in or that you're leasing and you can still get the rebate, so I think that's maybe an important point. I did not know that. That is a really important yeah. point. So it's about the generation capacity. Um, you know, it, it. I think, or let me maybe put it this way: there, there has always been a deduction for businesses who install um, solar power. Um, this, without getting too technical, this deduction is in Section 12B of the Income Tax Act, um, but that has always been around. So um, I think you know if you've got you're, you're renting out residential property, you'd need to have a look at both that section and the new one, and just see where you're falling um, in that regard, and maybe have a chat to somebody or engage with us about um, which section. You would you would use. Okay,
0: that that is great. Um, so while we're talking about rental property, and, and I think the the whole scope of this conversation would be mostly where, where our two worlds coincide: uh, the transfer of, of properties, property transfer, ownership of property, and then obviously property as as investment. But mainly focused on the individual and. Residential property being the investment, and as we've s- spoken now about rental property, uh, I, I want to tee you up a, a, a little bit. And leading up to this chat, I, I found on my TikTok channel that there's a, a lot of common beliefs in in South Africa by normal people like us uh, about property as investment. And I've been thinking on the validity of of all those uh, principles. And one of them is there's a firm belief in South Africa that everyone should own property. It's ingrained in in our culture, it's ingrained in in our being. If you, you get married and then you must look for a property to buy, it's just how it is. The second one is with that belief that all property is an investment. You can just buy a property, it's happy, it's part of your investment plan. Um, you don't have to, to think about it. Um, it, it It's always, always a great idea. And then thirdly, to tie in with that, I recently had a comment on, on TikTok where a person said that the value of property always goes up, even goes up daily. And with with those prompts, um, I would appreciate it if, if you can can unpack that a little bit and and just share your thoughts on that.
1: yeah Franco, I think there's a lot um, that we can say about uh, about those things. Um, <clears throat> I would maybe like to start by saying um, should everyone own property I think um, for most people, the ideal would be to at least at some point own their residence, the place that they live in. There is an argument to make for renting your residence. Um, my own feeling about that is that eventually, um, you, whilst you might pay a little bit less renting initially, your rent will go up with inflation every year. Whereas if you buy a property now, your monthly repayment to the financier, probably one of the banks, um, will vary with the interest rate. But if the interest rate, you know, sort of stays the same or in the same band, you'll still be paying the same amount 20 years from now, just before you pay it off. And so while initially it might seem a little bit cheaper to rent, my take on it is that in the long term, it will probably be beneficial for you to, um, to own your own property. Um, The second part of your question, I think I'd like to answer that maybe in in two bits. Um, The first bit is about you as as an investor and a a human being (laughs) and your situation, not about the property as such. Um, And I think what I would would like to say there is that firstly, you need to realize that a property investment is not entirely a passive investment. So, you cannot go out, buy a property, get an agent to let it out for you, and think that you're going to pay it off over the next 20 years with the rental that you get, and, and you're never going to go look at it again, or you, you're never going to have to handle you know, issues that, um, that arise. There will be maintenance issues, there will be probably tenant issues from time to time, and so on. So, you have to realize that you will have to keep tabs on this investment from time to time. Yes, maybe not every month, but it will take some of your time. So if you are not in a position to spend at least some time on this property, then I don't think it is for you. Um, You know, the other thing is you obviously need to keep tabs on sort of the area around the property and so on. So it's important to know that you will be spending some time on this. The second thing is not all people are made to be landlords because once again you know you can probably outsource a lot of your the process with the tenant to an agent but you are going to get into a situation like for instance we had three years ago with COVID where if you've got multiple properties one of your tenants is going to put their hand up and is going to say guys you know I've got a problem here um, I'm not able to pay and whilst you need to be humane about that um, what I've seen, for instance, with one of my clients is that since COVID almost, um, they were uh, the, the tenants were able to sort of twist this <laughs> client's arm and say, you know, we haven't recovered for almost two years where they didn't pay rent. And, and this lady um, has a very good heart and she said, well, you know, I can't charge these people rent if they really can't afford it. They've got a young family. and, and but. She ended up losing her rent for a year or two. And she actually had a, we had a chat about just her taxes and so on. And I said, well, what's going on here? And she said, well, this is the situation. And I sat her down and I said, you know what? I don't think property is for you because you are going to run into this issue again. Then you should rather take your money and put it in an investment where there isn't this human component that, that sort of puts you in a situation where you might be vulnerable to um, being very humane, but not making good investment decisions. Uh, I, I, I want to interject
0: there a little bit. And once again, as an attorney, and y- you obviously want to be humane and you want to be nice when someone is in, in trouble. But rental pro- property is an investment, and it's or let's call it a business, and it should bring money in. Uh, that's that's why you have it. And. I've usually advised my clients the first time someone can't pay their rent, I mean, that you red lights, and, and you must immediately start with processes because it's uh, eviction processes, things like that, is, is such a cumbersome process and it takes months to, to go down the line. So it might be that you uh, give this person rope for two or three or four months, and then you want to get rid of this person, then it takes another six months to get that person out of your house, and then it's been a year that you've been without any income on that that property. So, and so it, it makes sense. Uh, if, if you don't have the heart for it, <laughs> is it the best thing for you to, to be in, in business with? Um, but yes, please, go on.
1: All right. Yeah, I think what you're sketching, Francois, is sort of a worst-case scenario. I must say, in all the years, I, I haven't had that. <laughs> but but it's definitely possible, you know. And you need to you need to plan for that. So the second part of my answer, maybe, is then about the property as such. And I think your question with regards to that was: Is every property an investment property? Um, now, I think. There are a few types of properties that one can buy during your lifetime. I think the first one and the most important one um, would be your own, what we call your primary residence, the place where you live, where that you go home to every day after you come from work and where you raise your kids and and so on. Um, Quite often, the purchase of a residential property or primary residence is um, a bit of an emotional one. Um, especially um, for the ladies, quite often, you know, they have um, the ability to see themselves living there and raising their families. And if you get to a house where they can see themselves doing this, then, you know, we want this one. Um, so, um, my so your primary residence isn't necessarily bought as an investment, it's bought with a bit more emotion but as a place where you and your family can live. I think you know what one just needs to be careful of with your primary residence is that you buy that within your means. Um, and that you don't overcapitalize or overspend on that primary residence. Because even if you can afford the payment, if you don't need a very expensive residence, you'll have money available to make investments with. Um, So I think that's important to just um, take note of. Then, you know, as people carry on uh, in life, they sometimes get to a situation where, you know, they've gone down to the coast in December and while they're walking around, they say, hey, but you know, there's some properties for sale here and it's so nice down here that why don't we look at buying a house down at the coast? Um, And in South Africa, we're quite fortunate that property is relatively inexpensive, even though it might not feel like that to, to a lot of people, but it's relatively inexpensive. And so quite a few people are in a situation where they can do this financially. Now, once again, that property is also a bit of emotion attached. You know, you might like Belito and another guy might like Groot Refier, uh, and uh, someone else might like the West Coast. So you're probably gonna buy that in a place where um, where you want to go on holiday, where you want to spend time, um, but you really need to have a good look at the area that you're buying that in, and once again, you know, don't go too expensive. Um, if we look at property and the uh, the yields on property, um, and I th- and this is this is quite fundamental, you know, there are two. Um, sp- streams of, of yield basically. The one is the capital growth on your property. So that is the increase in the value of your property every year. If you bought a property today for two million and you can sell it next year for 2.1 million, then there's been a capital growth of 100,000 Rand. The second one is the rental income stream or the profit that you make on your rentals. Now to make a good investment in property, you need both. With your primary residence, and quite often also with your house down at the coast or in the Darkensburg or in the Bushveld, you don't necessarily get the second stream. The first stream is sort of inherent in the property itself, but the second one you don't get. And I saw a very interesting graph last night, which basically says that in all the big metros, except for Cape Town, there has been no real growth. And real growth just means growth adjusted by inflation. So um, the inflationary adjustment each year has, been, has already been removed off of the, out, of, out of that yield. There has been no growth in property prices over the past 10 years in real terms. So that basically means that you own, your house only increased in value by inflation. So you're basically in the same position that you were 10 years ago. And so what that tells you is that you really need that rental income stream. And that is why your primary residence and a residence down at the coast are definitely not um, good property investments from a yield point of view. From an emotional and a family point of view, by all means. So, (laughs) As I understand
0: it, and as I get it, um, I mean we should stop. In, in Afrikaans, we we'll, we call it bluff. Um, uh, well, Richard Feynman um, said that you, you shouldn't fool yourself, and and you're the easiest person to fool. And and I think when it comes to property, and especially these two emotional buys, uh, your residential property, and then. Uh, we grow up with with Kwiskumbace Amal Vla ECBDCA and, and you, you've got this dream. You want your your place down by the sea, and you you probably think when you're gonna buy it or get it that no, nah, yeah, we're gonna make money out of it, we're gonna put it on Airbnb, and then you, you kit it out, you get your interior, everything, your linen, and, and and when you once you have that in and your wife is it's it's her things then suddenly you don't wanna <laughs> put it on, <laughs> on Airbnb anymore. And then now suddenly you've got two properties that most probably won't grow really in, in capital and you won't get any, any rent, rental income from it. So it's, it's basically not an, an investment. And you showed me the graph uh, before the conversation and, and we'll put it in, in the show notes for the, the viewers. What's interesting, and, and I just maybe wanna put it in layman's terms, is obviously you, you, you might get some growth. Um, you're gonna sell your property for more than you bought it, but if you take off inflation, it didn't grow whatsoever. And if you don't have the, the rental income stream, uh, w- w- whether it's your own residential property, and maybe when if you have a property that's, you think of it as an investment property as well. you you. Um, And on that, I wanna shift gears a a little bit. In our preparation for this conversation, you indicated that you've got a a specific set of of rules or or principles that you usually use if you look at a property or property crosses your your path, that you use to take a closer look or to evaluate it, whether it's a good investment or not. Uh, And and obviously, it's not always, a winning module, um, and I want to I want to tee you up a, a little bit with, please share your principles with us if you would do so. But also to to start the conversation of, you noted the specific specific uh, case where you bought a, a property as an investment that was most probably your your worst property investment to date. So if you can tell us a little bit about the the school money that you've paid in in this game and then the principles that that grew out of that.
1: Yeah, so uh, Francois, baby, just on on the first property that I bought, um, I think that's quite an interesting story. I, um, as uh, all chartered accountants have to do, um, did my articles in uh, Johannesburg. Um, I started them in 2007 and I was renting a place in Sort of the greater Randburg area. I and I was quite comfortable there. Uh, it was, you know, it was a nice place to stay, easy access to the highways. And about a year into the lease in 2018, in other words, um, the uh, landlord came and said, "Well, guys, you, know, would you mind if we put this property on show because I really want to sell it?" Now, there had been an, a massive boom in the property market from about 2000. Um, to the extent that properties were growing by 10 odd percent a year, you know, you could put your rentals up by more than 10 percent a year. It was an amazing time for property investment in South Africa, an amazing time for the economy in, in total. But um, so early in 2008, we were still in that boom. So if you spoke to anybody, they said, well, you know, any property basically <laughs> is a good investment because we are getting these amazing returns. And so my flatmate at the time and I sort of looked at each other and we said, well, you know, we don't really want to move and everybody's saying make an investment in property. And so we, um, we had a chat to our bank and we said, well, guys, you know, we don't really have much for deposit or so, but would you be able to help us with a home loan? And back in those days, the bank would still give you a hundred percent loan and even finance the transfer duty and the conveyancing costs. So we got a what was called a hundred and seven about percent loan at that time. Um, we had signed and we signed with the bank, and before the property was even registered in our name, we gra- had the great economic crash of the second half of two thousand and eight. Um, The subprime crisis in the United States, the whole world economy just crashing and burning, um, on the back of, interestingly, you know the way the American banks were handling home loans at the time. So, by the time that property was registered in our names, it was already worth quite a bit less (laughs) than what we paid for it. But. There is nothing you can do about that at that point. So we kept this property. We stayed in it until we both moved on. Um, After that, we leased it out and we ended up selling it probably in about 2019. Um, So we had it for about 11 years for I think about 20,000 Rand more than we'd bought it for. (laughs) So, you know, in hindsight, that just wasn't a, a good call, you know. Um, but on the back of the information that we had at the time, yeah, the, the, there's very little that we we could have could have done about it. If we've, we'd have had that same boom for another few years, it would have been fine. Um, but that did teach me a few things, you know. The first thing is, well, you know, always have a look at the purchase price. Um, but also, you know, go in and stress test your situation. Um, and make sure that you can stay in a property long term. Um, because you have to ride out um, the things that happen in the markets. And you don't, there's a lot in property investment that you can control, but obviously, in the macroeconomic and in the world scenario, there's a lot that you cannot control. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and we I, I do want to want to delve into into that scenarios a, a bit more the the stress testing and I mean the we are just just for to to put us in in a, a place on the timeline it's the twenty sixth of May two thousand and twenty three whenever you watch this video so we just had another interest rate hike um, and and we'll chat about that but be, before we get to that. Um, we, in our preparation and everything, the, the type of principles that you apply now and have learned from that, uh, you, you mentioned uh, having a, a good estate agent uh, by your side, uh, looking at the price, location. Uh, there, there's a few of those. Could, could you unpack them and, and how you, you think about those? Yes. Um,
1: <clears throat> I, I just want to maybe start off by saying that um, if you cannot have all of these in place immediately when you're doing your first purchase, don't be too stressed about it. You know, um, my first principle for instance is, I think it the, it is extremely beneficial to go and build up a relationship with a good um, estate agent in the area that you are looking to buy. Um, and this might take a little while, you know, you. You know, you might meet multiple agents, but but you'll get to a point where you've got the one that one that you know. They think like you think. They look at things, sort of in the same way, and they won't come to you with, you know, every single <coughs> property that's on the market. But because they know. There's a long-term relationship that can be built out of this. They will also go to some trouble to to find you a suitable property for a suitable price as well, mm-hmm. and to give you guidance as to where you know the rental, what the potential rental is, um, conservatively, on the property and 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 where it is priced in terms of the market. So, I think that is very very important. And for me, I. I have a relationship like that um, with a local uh, estate agent and and I've benefited greatly from that um, in the past few years. Um, Look, yeah, then I think with the property as such, um, there's a few things. The first thing obviously is location. Um, So especially um, if you are new to the property investment game or haven't done a lot of it or don't have a lot of time to um to spend on it I would say go for a newer property um, in a in a location where there's growth and expansion uh, maybe don't go for an, a property in an older uh, area you'll have to keep a much uh, closer eye on on sort of the area if, if you're going for an older one and and obviously you know there's a lot more you um, um, repairs and, and maintenance that you might need to do in an older property. And that's not always apparent when you buy it, even though you know the seller needs to disclose certain things to you, they might not even be aware of everything. And, and things do break on a property as well. So it is better probably to have a look at a newer property, uh, brand new or a few years old. What I've also found is that quite often, the capital growth on a new property is better than one on a property that's already 10 years old or so. Um, So from that perspective, it also um, just makes sense. Um, I, um, as investment properties, I like properties with uh, limited um, garden, maybe a little patch of grass or so, but you don't want a property with a big garden and you're sort of expecting your tenant to look after it, uh, but you know they also don't really want to invest in, in it and so on so so keep it simple um, keep it keep it smallish uh, keep 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 the maintenance the ma- the, the monthly maintenance to to a, an absolute minimum uh, and there you know um a, a sectional title property where sometimes you know even the the outside of the property needs to ma- be maintained by the body corporate uh, and and the the building insurance is done by the body corporate is actually a very nice sort of property to, especially to start with if you're looking at investing. It makes things just much simpler and a burden on you much less. Um, and generally also, if you're looking at a, at, a, um, at a yield, and we'll go into the way we calculate that a little bit later, I think, um, there is always a sort of a sweet spot in the market. It, it's very difficult to go and rent out a five million Rand property for a a good return, whereas a one million rand property in the right location, normally, as a rule of thumb, the yield would be much better on that. Um, Obviously, you know, with property quite often, um, you you make your money when you buy. (laughs) So you need to do your homework before you buy, that you're buying at the right price, go and have a look at the market. And yes, you know, you can talk to estate agents about this, but we've got so many tools available these days on the Internet and even on our phones where we can look at properties and compare them. That there's a lot of work that you can do yourself as well. Make sure you you buy a property that is correctly um, priced. It's
0: Something that I actually didn't think about before we started, and I just want to raise it as a, as a point. And if this tanks, it's it's on me. But you just mentioned all uh, the properties in, in older and in all the neighborhoods and things like that. Uh, I've heard of, of a lot of a lot of people that believe in in flipping houses, um, buying an old house that's run down, doing some repairs, and and then selling it again. So. and and maybe I'm I'm, I'm gonna ask of you to address those in two capacities. One, your individual capacity as a property investor. What do you think about that? And secondly, as an auditor, um, the the financial aspects thereof, uh, the repairs that you buy, the house repairs you make, then you sell it for
1: a higher price. Will that be deductible? How does that work? Okay, yeah, I think that's an interesting question, Francois, because we do see quite a bit of that. And and there's a few comments that I just maybe want to make about that. Firstly, from a property investment point of view. Um, The first thing is that um, there are costs to enter and exit the market when you're buying and selling property, more so than with most other investments, because you need to pay the attorney for conveyancing. There is, depending on the value of the property, some transfer duty that needs to be paid and so on. So normally one would look at property as a longer term investment because you need to sort of um, recoup those costs in the first few years. So that makes property, flipping property, um, you know, a a more difficult proposition, but it's, it's, Math, in the end, it's it's a it's a sum that you need to do to see if it works. So but you need to be aware of those costs. And remember also when you sell the property, you're probably gonna get an estate agent to market it for you. So you know, you're gonna lose five or ten percent commission as well. So you need to take that into account. The second thing that I would maybe like to say about that is um you I think that once again depends a bit on you. So if you are a guy or a lady who is quite handy um, who's done diy projects all your life uh, and who is comfortable doing a lot of the renovations that you need to do in order to flip the property yourself or with um, subcontractors then it might make sense if you are an auditor like me who um, prefers to make use of other people (laughs) to tile your floors and paint your walls and so on. Then it becomes a lot more expensive to do these renovations. Um, It's less time consuming but it's a lot more expensive. So what I've seen with with flipping properties is that you need to be very hands-on and you need to know and do quite a bit of that yourself or supervise a lot of that yourself and then it can work. I've, I definitely have friends and, and, and clients who've done this and who've, who've done well. But especially with flipping properties, the uh, price that you buy at is absolutely crucial because you have no time for the market to grow into a, uh, into a price. You're basically looking at a four, hopefully not more than a four month window in which you need to get rid of this property again. Um, so you need to buy right. PKD Auditors is a multidisciplinary audit, accounting,
0: tax, and advisory firm. They seek to add value to their clients through building long-term relationships, allowing them to design tailored solutions while giving you, the client, the peace of mind that your financial compliance needs are taken care of. Uh, Yeah, that that makes sense. And it it pretty much takes us into our, the next part of our conversation and what you touched on, and it's something that I see as in, in a lot of the transfers that I do. And there's this, most of the things we buy, all the costs are already included in the purchase price. I mean we we bought this cup of coffee here now and the price you pay is is the price you pay uh, the the beans the water the making of it the taxes whatever the case might be is, is already included in the price and I want to to chat about uh, a bit about the the costs of, of property and we're going to talk in a lot of the a lot of different directions on that but what i find lots of times, is people have this, or buyers especially, this big divide between the price tag on the house and then all the other costs they they must pay. So they, okay, they've got a budget of two million rand, they know they can get a a bond for two million or they have two million cash, so they look for houses for two million rand. And then, as you said, emotionally, wife sees a house, great and might usually see a house that's a little bit more expensive than two two million and 50 or whatever the case might be. And then we start the transfer process and me as a transfer attorney, I send my account and like, hey, what's going on here? (laughs) Um, why why are we, and the additional costs, they didn't necessarily think about them or they didn't know about them. I, I find lots of times or they aren't prepared for them and they don't see the whole package um, as, as part of, of the cost of the property. And then as you correctly indicated, I think especially if, if you are going to sell your property within a seria, seria, uh, certain time frame, you must keep in mind that you're going to have to pay an estate agent as well in three years, four years, 10 years, and that's gonna be a large chunk of of the money. It's gonna be 5%, it could be 100,000 grand. Um, And those costs, you you need to to include those. Um, What are your your thoughts on that? Uh, How you should think about those costs, Uh, the different types of costs that you get in property and that people should keep in mind when they decide to, to buy a property?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Franco. Uh, if I may, I would just like to go one little step back um, and I'll answer this question now, but to the flipping of properties just from an auditor's point of view. Um, I think the important thing that you need to note when you are flipping properties um, is that if you buy property as an investment and you hold it for a number of years and you sell it, then that sale is what we call a capital gain. So it is, um, it gets taxed um, under the capital gains tax regime. If you sell that as an individual, then it means that only 40% of the profit that you've made is added to your taxable income and you pay tax on that. If you are flipping properties, then the, the money that you make, the profit that you make is not a capital gain, it is of an income nature and you are going to pay tax on hundred percent of the profit that you make. And that is also just a big difference that you just need to be aware of. Look, obviously if you're making money you've probably done well and it might still be worth it, but I often get guys that come in and they say, oh, but this was a property that I sold so it must be a capital gain. No, it depends on your intention. It's a capital gain if you were intending to keep it for a long period. You did. If you were intending to just flip it, it's not. Um, So that I think is, I just wanted to, to, to clarify that and to get that in there because I think that's a common misconception.
0: That is, is a very important point and some I don't know it. Uh, so it's, it's something I learned today. and, and we're moving into costs. Uh, but while we are on capital gain, which is a, a cost, let let's kick it off with, with capital gain. I, I see a lot of people on my TikTok channel a lot of questions on, on capital gain, capital gains tax, how does it work? Uh, what is it What does it mean in, in principle? Uh, in, in concept, uh, it's as you say. Okay, you, it's it's only forty percent forms part part of your 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 taxes. But what does that mean <laughs> for a, a normal person like me? And, and we get um, I see a lot of transfers in, in Porch of Portschewström that somebody bought a a, a house or a, a plot uh, in nineteen ninety, and now they wanna to move to the to or whatever the case might be, they sell it now and there's a they bought it for 100,000 Rand and now suddenly they sell it for, for three million Rand. Um, so if you can, can unpacked, unpack in, in, in a way capital gains tax maybe for us a bit uh, and yeah, how does that impact our lives and how must we think about that? Because that's not a, a common cost that we equate with, with property. We, we think about transfer costs, bond costs, uh, these type of things, but but I think capital gains, when you sell your property, that tax is only coming to you down the line, in six months, a year, whatever the case might be. So we, we kind of forget about it. So where and
1: how does that play a role, and how should we think about it? So first things first, if we're talking capital gains tax, then you know I think, um, we should congratulate the investor because he's made profit on his investments if he's looking at that. So um, how capital gains tax basically works is that it is a a once-off tax on a transaction where a capital asset, so an asset that an investor has bought and kept for more than a year or so, um, is sold and um, the gain that is made on that um, investment is then being taxed. So if we look at that specifically for property, um, then there are two very important concepts without getting too technical. Um, If we look at capital gains tax, the first thing is what we call proceeds. So that would be the money that you have made um, from uh, the sale of the investment. And the second thing is what we accountants or auditors called base costs. So the costs of this property and we'll get into those quickly now. So proceeds I think is quite simple. Um, probably the price that you've sold your property at but there might have been certain costs that you picked up in the transaction which obviously you can um, deduct. Um, costs or base cost is a bit of a more interesting concept and there are a lot of technical things about that. I don't want to get into a lot of that today. Um, capital gains tax was introduced here on 1 October 2001. If you are selling a property um, that was purchased before that date, then I would suggest that you go and talk to an auditor or an accountant about your capital gains tax. Some because that gets quite complicated and I don't, we don't have time to, today to get into that. If you've bought a property after 2001, then your base cost would be the cost that you paid for this property and that would include um, all of the once-off costs and we'll get into those a little bit later. And then any further costs that you have incurred over time to um, advance the the value of the property. So not repairs and maintenance that you would typically deduct off of your rental income. But um, you know any big um, things that you've done with the property where you've increased the property's value, like a, adding on a room or a major revamp, putting in a new kitchen, or or something like that. Um, so basically, for capital gains, then you would deduct your base cost from your proceeds and get to an amount. This amount. If you are an individual, 40% of this amount gets added to your taxable income. You're not taxed at 40%, that's important, it gets added to your taxable income, and your taxable income then gets multiplied by the percentage of the tax bracket that you are in. So that might be anything from 18 to 45% if you are a very high, income earner. Um, so, effectively, as an individual, the highest rate that you could pay capital gains tax at is 45% of the 40% that you've made, so basically about 18% of um, the profit that you've made. Um, when you buy or when you sell property that sits in a different uh, legal entity, not in an individual's name, in a a warm body's name. Um, then it works a little bit differently, um, but you then you include 80% of the gain that you have made on uh, on the property.
0: Okay, and I know previously we, we've worked together on, on a few things, and I know there's, I don't want to call it a simple equation, but There's a few set principles, how to calculate uh, capital gains tax if you have the input values and and things like that, when you bought the property for for what. And you can get a good idea uh, what your capital gains tax should be. So for the interested viewers, uh, we will try to to include that calculation in the show notes. So keep an eye out for that and see if we can, if you wanna uh, do that calculation for yourself, you can do that and yeah, so keep an keep an eye on that. And then, if if we can move then back to the costs, um, the the other costs that should be kept in mind when it comes to to property, the actual expenses of that. Uh, what what are those? Uh, when are they due owing and payable? If we can can call it that, and you mentioned. And an interesting earlier thing earlier is is your the most important period or the most important thing is, is when you buy the property. And I think a lot of investors or a lot of people think about property when they will sell the property. That's where their profit will come from. And and I see so many people holding on to their property. Uh, they already moved to another property and they are holding on to the current one because they want a certain price for that property. And I've seen people holding on to it for a year, year and a half, it's standing empty and they want their their price. And and I think that is exact opposite of, of what you're saying, that the most important time for your profit or your investment is actually when you buy the property what are all those costs? Um, I, I know we talked about once-off regarding buy and sell, and we talked about monthly costs, so if I can, can
1: uh, tee you up on that, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think let's break that down in, into a few um, areas, uh, Francois. Um, let's start with the once-off costs and maybe with the once-off costs, firstly, when you're buying a property, um, so, Um, The things that you need to be aware of, if you are buying a property um, that is not entirely new, I'll touch on buying a property from a developer uh, as a second part, but let's say we're buying this from another individual or at least not from the developer. You're buying from me. I'm buying from you, let's say. Then there are a few that I'm going to incur. The first thing is unfortunately, if the property is worth more than 1.1 million Rand, you are going to incur transfer duty, which is a transactional tax that's payable to SARS on the value of the property. And it is the purchaser who incurs the transfer duty. So that's important to note. And generally, the bank will not finance this transfer duty. You will have to come up with that yourself. Then, Unfortunately, attorneys don't work for free. So you are gonna have to pay the bill of your transferring attorney. Um, in, in, uh, in our property sector, um, I've always found it a bit strange that it is the seller who appoints the transferring attorney but the buyer needs to pay uh, this <laughs> attorney. But that is the way it works. Um, so um, you, you'll have to pay that attorney. Uh, And those costs, well, you can talk about that a little bit more, but that works on a sliding scale as I have it. Um, The third thing would probably be if you are buying this property and you need to finance it, then there will be a bond that needs to be registered um, for the financing institution over this property. And there is a certain cost to registering this bond. And you will have to pick up that cost as well. Um, and even that, uh, you know, normally also works on a bit of a sliding scale. Um, and um, there, are, there is some guidance regarding this. So maybe in the, in the notes to, the, um, to the, the podcast, we can also touch a little bit on that or give an indication of what this might be. I, if I can interject,
0: I, I just I just want to touch on it quickly, and I don't want to do a get, get into a, a monologue or a TED talk here about costs of property. Um, but being a transfer attorney, um, we I see that so often, and buyers not really knowing what it is going to to cost them. And I don't know if they didn't prepare or they didn't do some research, um, but it is the case. And as you say, it's a sliding, uh, sliding scale. It's not a percentage based. Usually, especially at the transfer attorney and the bond attorney, the more expensive the property gets, the in p- percentage wise, the, the amount they are getting gets less um, and I also find the more expensive the property gets the more buyers try to to negotiate regarding a, a discount um, so that happens and but I find the inverse with transfer duty uh, transfer duty is manageable up to a certain point and then I find here about 2.8 2 million to 2.5 million, suddenly it, it gets hectic. <laughs> it, it gets a lot that you have to, to pay to such in, in terms of, of taxes for the property. And as you said, we'll put it in the show, show notes. Uh, you can visit our website, uh, francoforster.com. There's various calculators there you can play around with, put the, the the purchase price of the property in and you'll get a clear indication what would be your transfer costs, your bond costs, and the transfer duty payable. And I usually find if we, usually the transfer attorney, his pro forma account will include the transfer duty, but if you forget about the transfer duty for a while, the transfer attorney and the bond attorney, their accounts is it, usually pretty much the, the same. Once again, Uh, I find people getting a little bit (laughs) amped up about it regarding the costs, But these costs are are set by our council, uh, by by the Legal Practice Council, uh, proposed costs that that we need to adhere to. Uh, As you say, don't really want to work for free, um, but but it's part of of the cost. So, yes, on our website, you you can go and play around with the cost and see exactly what, what you will be in for.
1: All right. Yeah. And then there might be one or two small costs, um, the cost to obtain clearance figures for the property from the municipality. Uh, but those costs are normally negligible. Uh, they won't make a big difference in um, in the sum. Um, if you are buying from a developer, then the there is normally no transfer duty on the transaction. Um, I don't really want to get into the reason why now, but, but you can, um, uh, it's important to make sure of that when you're buying from a developer, but generally that would be the case. And uh, generally, the developer will also pick up the tab for the transferring attorney. So those two costs you would save, and that's why quite often with a new property, you just need to be aware of that, because you, if you're buying, a property from somebody else, you know, you might end up paying a 100,000 Rand more or so than the list price because these two costs are not included. Whereas with the the developer, with the new property they normally are. So generally, if you're buying a property from a developer, the only cost that you would really pick up is the bond registration and then these small ancillary costs that we've just spoken about. So that's an important difference to note. Those are the ones of costs if you're buying. If you are selling, then um, except for the capital gains tax, which we've spoken about, but once again, that means you've made profit, so don't worry too much about that. There is the biggest cost that you normally incur is the um, commission of the estate agent. And once again, generally, I found that if you have a relationship with an estate agent, then you can negotiate with them a little bit about the percentage of the transaction that goes to them as a commission because they also know that you are a repeat customer. Um, This generally can be anything from about 5% plus VAT to 10% or so um, as a rule of thumb, but that is a significant portion because remember that is on the sale price. Um, So for a two million Rand property, that's gonna be 200,000 Rand. between 100,000 and 200,000 Rand. So that's a significant cost. Um, you will need to get a certificate of compliance from an electrician once again, and this time not just for the solar installation, but for the whole property. Um, the, the, the certificate as such is normally not that expensive, but what tends to happen, especially with all the properties is that, um, there are certain things that need to be fixed at that time for the electrician to be able to give you the certificate of compliance and, and you will, you as the seller will need to pay for those. Um, there will also be a small fee for deregistering uh, de- the bond or cancelling the bond at the, the deeds office. Um, and uh, But that is generally uh, a lot smaller than the registration of the bond. Um, and um, yeah, then oh, there are once again small ancillary costs that uh, one, yeah. one needs to look at.
0: I, I think, just from my day to day experience, before we move on to, to monthly costs, I can just color in the picture a bit for our viewers. The bond cancellation is usually between four and five thousand rand, uh, so that's yeah, as you say in the in the bigger picture <laughs> it's it's not that much and I think what what sellers miss is they sit with a state agent and they negotiate a percentage okay it's going to be five percent plus VAT or it's going to be seven and a half percent plus VAT, but they never actually make the sum. <laughs> yeah. How much is that in rand? Um, it's gonna be 200,000 Rand or plus that 230,000 Rand. And that taken off uh, your, your selling price is, is quite a substantial chunk. And you have to remember as well that you have to pay the bond off. So there might be, let's say you sell your property for two million Rand, 230 goes to the estate agent, and there's, let's say there's a million left over on your bond. So suddenly you're getting, if my, Calculations, Greg. Only six hundred and seventy thousand of the total sale price. And a person that that I like to follow, Ramit Seti, he's got some interesting views regarding property and especially uh, your your primary residence and how long you should live in it. And he's got a kind of also a, a few set principles, and I will we'll link to that in the show notes. But he says you. If you buy a property, you should live in that property for 10 years or or more. And you alluded earlier as well that when you visit a property with your wife, she sees the kids growing up there and and everything. And I think that should be the the idea. Otherwise, you've got all this once off costs at the start, bond attorney, transfer attorney, transfer duty. Let's say that's 150,000 on top of your your 2 million. Uh, And then Let's say you, you sell that property within three years. Now add on top of that 250000 that goes to the estate agent. Uh, your COCs, the worst one I've seen with the repairs was 27,000 rands worth of repairs that, that uh, a, a friend of mine had to, had to do on the property before they could get the COC. You didn't bargain for that, you didn't budget for that. That comes out of your pocket up front. And then obviously, the municipal fees and, and so you bought a property for two million, you sell it in five years for, let's say 2.2 million, you think, yeah, I, I had a good deal. Um, but if you add all the expenses, suddenly you made a substantial, substantial loss in in cash, in cash flow. Um, so yeah, just that's just from, from my experiences to date and that people should keep in mind is to properly a look at the buying of the property, but also the selling of the property and what will this property cost you in, in, the, the, yeah, in the
1: long run. But then also there will be monthly costs. Yes, that's correct. Maybe just one last cost of, of getting out of the market, franchise, and, and you've done nice material on this, is also that there will be a cost from the bank side um, to cancel the bond um, from at the bank itself. Um, and depending on how much notice you've given and so on, you know, that, that might differ, but um, I'm not gonna get into the detail of that now. Uh, there's nice material available about that. Um, monthly costs, <clears throat> if we are renting out a property, um, are quite often the thing that will make or break uh, the investment going forward. So the first monthly cost, Um, would be the rates and taxes to the municipal authority. Um, And depending on which municipality uh, you are in, that might, or or how old the property is generally that you are renting out, that might be rates and taxes, normally water, um, maybe even electricity as well. Although I would urge you if you are you know, going to lease out a property to to install a prepaid uh, electricity meter. Uh, you don't want to get into a situation where a tenant leaves you with an unpaid bill for three or four months' worth of electricity after they've gone. It's it's not uh, not something that, that you really want. Um, so so those fixed costs you will need to cover. <clears throat> um, normally, the electricity and the water gets recouped from the tenant um, themselves. So that's not for your pocket. If you are, uh, if, if the property is in a sectional title scheme or in a, an estate where there is a homeowners association, there will be a levy from this uh, body corporate or homeowners association. That can, depending on the type of property and the location, be quite substantial. You know, if you are buying a property in, a golf estate or something you know, that tends to be quite a, a heavy burden. If you are just buying it in a smaller um, setup that normally is to cover the security and, and a few of those things, and, and it will be a bit more palatable. Um, the other big monthly cost, depending on how you are doing your rentals, would be the commission of the estate agent that is um, marketing this property for you and quite often doing a bit of the management of, with the tenant as well. And once again, you know, this can be anything from about, well, i say eight to 12% or so of the monthly um, rental. Um, so that is a significant cost and it makes a very big difference in your uh, in your sum at the end of the day. And then I think a big one that is quite difficult to quantify is repairs and maintenance. Um, Unfortunately, even with new properties, um, things do break. If you're buying a brand new property, normally in the first few months, if it's something that just wasn't put in properly, then um, the developer will come and fix it. Uh, But if you're buying a slightly older property, the geezer does break, Um, (laughs) you know, and there are certain other costs. if I look at, at maintenance costs, if I'm buying a brand new property, I I budget f- for very little maintenance in the first year or two, three. But any property that's older than three or four years, I tend to take about a 10% um, out of the monthly rental and say, well, you know, I'm gonna budget that 10% when I do the maths about the yield on this property for maintenance. Um, some guys will tell you that that is a bit excessive, but you know, I'm an auditor, I like to be conservative with these things and I don't want to get caught out. Because um, uh, you don't incur this every month, obviously, as well, so what tends to happen is, you know, you need to do something big and then you need to fork out a lot of money and certain, suddenly you see, hey, but I'm having a problem here.
0: You yeah, that just, it, it makes sense. I mean, if, if you build that up, you have it to your disposal And if you see in a few years that you don't need it, well, then you can use it, go on holiday, treat your wife, whatever the case might be. Um, In terms of of costs, I want us just to quickly touch on, on two more points that we talked about in preparation. And those points are as follows so, two pertinent points we touched on in, in our pre-coffee and, and I think we've addressed a lot of those points already is, is the cost of moving in and, and into the market and out of the market. And we must remember it's for the same property. So that will have a, a substantial impact on the calculations of, of your cash flow and your money. And then also the second thing that you mentioned the other day is where you get into a situation where you must sell. And that's actually a situation that you never want to get get in. Um, what, what's your thoughts regarding that? And I, and I think that it's a pertinent time to talk about that because if you take the last year and a half in South Africa with the amount that interest rate rates increased you on a 2 million Rand bond, you're most probably now paying 5,000 Rand a month more. For that bond. So if you were already capped in your budget, and you didn't have any fat built into your budget, you've got a, a big problem now.
1: Yes, you do. So I think you know, it, you never want to be in a situation with a property where you need to sell it, um, or you need to do a fire sale on it. Let's say. Um, you have to get rid of it because you can't keep up with the costs or, or there's some other financial constraint that's that's getting you down. Um, unfortunately, you know, then you, it takes time to market a property uh, to get a good price for it. And, and if you get, need to get rid of it now, you won't get the price that you should be getting for the property. And obviously that is severely gonna affect your yield on that property. Um, I think it's important to, stress test your um, model uh, and and the maths that you do around buying your property. You cannot go and buy a property at the absolute high level mark uh, of where the bank will give you a bond and, and what you can financially afford. That is not a good decision to make. You need to go and have a look at the costs and everything and say, well, you know what, what if the interest rate rises by another five percent what will my repayment be if i cannot afford that and, and and in current times i would say you need to have a look at if the interest rate is 15 or 15 and a half percent i'm i i can not see us getting there but stranger things have happened um you you don't want to get rid of that property then because you're also not going to be the only one in the market then. We're going to have a lot of other guys that need to sell, so that is going to push down prices. So if you can't afford the property at a fifteen or sixteen percent interest rate, then you really don't need to buy that property, and you have to have a look at a slightly more affordable property. Um, so that I think is is of the utmost importance. You cannot just look at where the interest rates are now, and that is a very pertinent question, because somebody who bought a property just after COVID, when interest rates were at a, I don't know, a 50 year low, <laughs> um, is feeling the effects of this now, as you've, as you've just said, and those people are under pressure. Um, you don't want to be in that situation, not only because of the the loss that you might make, but this is gonna give you sleepless nights and, and emotionally, it's definitely gonna have an impact. It's so interest, interesting what you're saying because I mean,
0: that's exactly the opposite of, of what we all do. I mean, we start and we think, okay, I wanna buy a property, so what do we do? We go to a bank, we get a pre-qualification, you're pre-qualified for a two million bond, and what do we do? We search for a property for two million, um, and that's actually not how we should go about it. Firstly, we haven't thought about the costs whatsoever. Uh, what it will be the cost to be or get into the the market? We're buying at the utmost, utmost top of, of what we can afford. And then, if something goes wrong, and if if the viewers want to read things on on that, I mean, Nasim Taleb is got great books about being anti-fragile is to set ourselves up that we you, you can weather a knock or weather a storm and we have to prepare for things that we didn't think will happen. Um, and, and I know it's difficult to do that, but nobody thought something like COVID was, was possible, but it did happen. Nobody thinks at this stage we will go to 15% interest rate, but it might happen and, and what then? And, you, you might think, okay, but then I'm going, it's gonna be 10,000 Rand more on my bond, but that won't be the only cost that will go up. Um, it will be food, it will be petrol, it will be fuel, whatever the case might be. So your your total budget will take a, a substantial knock. Um, in, in this, you, you touched on yield and, and how you think about uh, profit, making money on on property, uh, investment property. Do you have a, a specific way that you think about it? Capital rental income. Do you have a specific model that you that you follow? That you insert your figures that that assists you with with that?
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely do. Francho, over time, uh, you know I been able to, to build up a model into which I can plug um, a few of the figures and, and just that just gives me an, an indication of the yield. Um, I think um, the, the, the first thing and the, and the most important thing is that where people often go wrong with evaluating a property, um, is that if you are not buying the whole property cash, um, then when you look at your yield, you really need to look at the yield on the money that you put in. So, if you are buying a 2 million Rand property and you are putting down a 10% deposit and let's say another 100,000 Rand in costs, then you have incurred 300,000 Rand that you don't have in your pocket after you've done the deal. Now, if you are fortunate enough that the rent covers the um, 90% that's left, or the, the bond costs and, and, and the monthly costs on, on whatever's left, then the 300,000 is really the investment that you have made, and it's on the 300,000 that you need to go and work out what your yield is, not on the 2 million or the 2.1 million rand that you've actually paid for this property, because in effect, that is not what it has cost you to do this transaction. So, what you'll often find is that somebody will go and say, Okay, but you know, if I get four percent capital growth and I get this rental, hmm, you know, my my yield on two million Rand is only eight or 9%. That's not great. I can almost get that um, in a far risk, less risky investment as well. But what I'm saying is I don't, that's not the right way to go about it. Go and have a look at the yield in terms of the money that you have put in, what you've taken out of your pocket and put into this property. And we can talk about that a little bit more, but that's also something that you, you can do it at the start But it's something that you need to sort of do every two to three years. To say, well what's this property worth now? So how much of my money is in here? If I sell it now, what am I gonna get out? And is the yield that I'm getting on that um, worth it for me or not? Or is it time for me to to maybe get out of this property? Um, To explain the whole model, I think, is gonna be difficult, um, but um, I am more than willing to share um, the model and so, so that the, uh, the listeners and the viewers can, um, can pluck some of the figures in there themselves. I, I would advise, though, that obviously once you've done that, you just go to, to a person, especially if you're new into this, uh, that has you know, seen this... Sort of modeling before, and just to get an opinion. Yeah. About
0: that. Okay, that that'd be great, and and we'll see if we can put it together in such a way to, to share it in the show notes for everyone. Um, and as Jonathan alluded to, is what what we're doing here is not not financial advice or anything. We're just talking generally. So whatever <laughs> you hear, whatever strikes you, whatever whatever touches you, make sure that you speak to to someone uh, that's that's and knows about your situation, your finances, and that can guide you regarding that. I, in, in light of our conversation, I ask um, on, on our channels and on TikTok if people have certain questions for us. And claim gear asked, and, and it touches with us, this, that's why I, I throw it in here. Uh, as a new professional, would it be wise to purchase a house and, and renting it out? Ie having the tenants pay the bond off, um, advise do's and don'ts, and that's basically what what you talked about now. They in you in for three hundred thousand, but then obviously you've got someone that rents the property that's technically paying the bond. You're not paying the bond.
1: Yeah, that's right, Francis. So so that's what that's where you want to be. One important point I think that I just want to make about that, and this is with my auditor hat on um, a little bit more again is that there is a common misconception that if I look at my profit from my rental properties um, that you know if I receive my rental income and I deduct my bond and my costs from that and there's basically nothing left then I'm breaking even so I'm not making a profit. That is not the case. In your bond payment, your bond payment basically consists of two different Things. The first thing is the interest that you are paying on the money that you've lent from the bank at the eleven or so odd percent interest rate that that you've on, in the agreement have with the bank, and and that interest is deductible from your um, income on the property. But there is a portion of that bond or of of that amount every month that is. Um, paying off the actual loan at the bank, so by which your loan reduces every month, so that over 20 or 30 years, it's at zero. Um, And that portion is not deductible for tax because you are using that to pay off an asset. That is not an expense. And it's a quite common misconception that for tax, in other words, you can deduct the whole um, bond payment That's not the case, so just be aware of that. Quite often at the start of the bond, the interest is very high because the the loan is still very big and the impact of that little capital portion is small, but as you're paying off more of the bond, the interest becomes less and the capital portion becomes more, and so with the same net cash flow every month, your tax taxable income on this actually becomes more. So don't be fooled by that and get some advice on the impact of that because you might end up having to pay income tax on your rental income even though you haven't actually made cash uh, on it. Are you a business owner, farmer or individual who owns a
0: building? then you need to speak to Orca Solar to find out how you can save on electricity costs and make load shedding a thing of the past. They are a specialized alternative energy company founded on the combined passion for engineering and economics. With their professional engineers and qualified installation teams, they've been doing solar installations for over nine years. Find out how they can help landlords, farmers, hospitals, and hundreds of households across South Africa with uninterrupted power supply that makes financial sense. Basically, they can help you. Contact the professional team for a free consultation. If you want to do it right, you do it with Orca Solar. That's a very interesting point, and and I see that often as well. Uh, People saying, but listen, I've been paying my bond now, it's a new bond, I've been paying it for six months, let's say 15,000 a month, uh, which would be 90,000 Rand, if I (laughs) quickly do my calculations, but my bond amount only reduced by 10,000. And that's exactly why it is, because at the beginning, the portion of the capital that you're paying is, is so little, The rest." only interest, and you have to be be very aware of that. Um, I think, and, and I think now we, we're pretty much gonna get into the, the meat of the, the conversation and really get into the weeds now. And that is the different entities to buy property in. Um, so I find, A lot of people obviously they buy in in their personal names uh, as an individual and then at some point they get to a situation, oh, should have been in a company or must we now buy property in in a trust? How does that work? What's the impact of these entities? Are there certain properties, uh, i.e a residential property that your your primary residence that you should buy in your personal name and then your investment properties in a different entity. There's so many different things and, and lots of times, and I see people as well, where they're married in community of property, they've bought, five or six properties over 10 or 15 years. One of them, husband or wife, majorly successful now, and now they've got all these properties at risk, being married in community of property. If something like COVID comes along, then you can lose all those properties. Um, so firstly, if, if if you can maybe touch on the different vehicles to, to buy property in, and then I would like to get in Uh, into the the perfect scenario. Um, If you can, if a a young couple comes to you, they're married, they have, maybe they've already bought a primary residence or they will buy a a primary residence, they're thinking about it now, but they're both successful, they've got big salaries or they've got a successful business, so they are thinking about buying five or or 10 investment properties, rental properties over the next 10 or 15 years. What would the the perfect model, in your opinion,
1: uh, be for for something like that? Yeah, Franco, I think that's an an interesting question. And I'm going to start with the basics and then then probably just just work into that model a little bit. Um, Let's start with a primary residence. So the residence that you and your family are staying in. I am you know, uh, of the opinion that a primary residence, you need to keep in your own name. The house that I stay in with my wife Ilana and my three kids, um, my wife and I uh, own that property 50-50. It's in both our names. We married out of community of property, but with the accrual. So, um, you know, there is a little bit of risk mitigation in there, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But the big reason for that is the fact that firstly that property is not going to increase in value too much but secondly the increase in value that I do get, the first two million profit that I make on this property when I sell it is tax-free because it is the property that I live in and the government doesn't want to tax us on just the normal growth on that property every year because if you're gonna to need to probably buy another property with the money that you, uh, that you get out of your primary residence. So the thinking was never to, to go and tax again on that. If it's more than two million Rand, obviously you will need to pay a little bit of, uh, of capital gains tax on that then. But I think the general viewer won't make a, a profit of two million on their residential property quickly. Um, so I would say keep that in your own name. If you, are married out of community of property and there is one of the two, uh, uh, the wife or the husband has a higher risk profile than the other, in other words, they have their own business, they need to sign surety for things or whatever the case might be, then it might be worth it to look at buying it in the less risky uh, spouse's name. Um, But I think that's something that you need to get proper advice on. But as a rule of thumb, primary residence in your own name to get the two million rand um, capital gains tax exclusion. Um, Then in South Africa, um, we have certain other uh, legal entities which you could use to buy property. Uh, The first one is a private company or Pty Limited. Um, well Well, we can, Um, go into the detail of how you need to register that and so on. But I don't think we want to do that today. Um, You can get advice on that. The big thing with a PTY limited is that the tax rate in, in that entity is 27%. Whereas the highest tax rate that an individual will pay is 45% if you're earning about 1.7 million or 1.8 million or more. But from about seven or 800,000, you are already paying tax at 41%, which is a high, um, a high tax rate. So in a company, there's a straight 27% tax rate, which is a lot less than uh, the 41 that an individual pays. Um, and that's why quite often it is, if you're looking at building a portfolio, it might be a good idea to have a look at a company um, where the tax rate is lower um, then we also have trusts and without getting into too much detail about trusts um, what i would maybe just like to say about trusts is that if you are going to set up a trust make sure that you get proper advice and that you fully understand how a trust works and why it is beneficial to have a trust because there are a myriad of misconceptions about (laughs) trusts and the way they work and how you need to use them and so on out there. And there are certain financial implications also with regards to trusts. So so get proper advice about that. But you can hold a property in a trust. A trust's tax rate is 45%, which is high. and even on a capital gains, from a capital gains point of view, you know, trust pays capital gains tax on 80% of the capital gains, so you might end up at 80% or 45%, that's about a 36% hit. Now, once again, without getting into detail, you, know, you are able to, um, to move out some of those capital gains to beneficiaries and, and so on, but um, you will need to get personalized advice. on on that. If we have a look at what I would recommend as a a perfect structure, then what I would say is the following. Um, If you are buying your first investment property and you are a normal salary earner, but you can, (coughs) sorry, you can see yourself building up a portfolio but very gradually you know you might buy a property now and you're probably looking at only buying the second one in five or six or seven years time then I would say keep it simple buy the property in your name or in your spouse's name um, you know deal with the the income tax on on the property in in yourself or in your spouse's name and and and, and just get to know the whole process without incurring the further costs or the admin of having another legal entity involved in this. If you are buying your second, third, fourth property or you are really, you're looking at buying more than one property or you can see yourself, you know, buying a property every year or so, then I would say, okay, but let's look at setting up a structure. And for me, um, the perfect structure would be to, to set up a trust, um, and, but to not buy the property in the trust itself. So I would typically go and set up a trust and then set up a private company, uh, PTY Limited. Um, though the shares of this PTY Limited, so the, 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 the entity that owns this PTY Limited, there needs to be this trust that you've just set up. So the the benefit of that is the fact that you still get the 27% tax rate on this this income, but the capital growth um, on the um, properties is outside of your and your wife's personal estates. um, And that is beneficial because the day that the last one of you passes away, SARS is gonna want 20% of the value of your estate that is over seven million. Um, So once again, you know, it gets very technical, go and get advice about it, but that is the general rule of thumb. And that's why I would say any assets that you have that will grow in value, which we really hope property will do, move them out of your personal estate under a structure where there's a trust, but not directly in a trust. I like to have a trust in place merely as a placekeeper. The trust mustn't own any asset directly except the shares in these private companies. And you, you can set up more than one private company. I, I wouldn't go and set up one. I often get the question, do I need to buy every property in a different <laughs> uh, private company? Don't do that. Uh, you know, that's, Your admin is gonna become an absolute nightmare. Um but go and put them under the trust in a private company,
0: yeah, and as you said i mean with with every company there's obviously costs i yes. mean costs to once again <laughs> getting into the market and every setting up the company getting it registered there's yearly you uh, must yearly fees that has to be to be paid and otherwise it goes into deregistration and and all of those things, so that's that's it must be be kept in mind. It's also gonna gonna cost cost you a few things. Um, I just for for a, a small moment, just have a, a little look at, at trust. Uh, I think there's a lot of common misconceptions a, about trust. I find a lot lots of times that people refer to trusts and a trust account as in, in the same vein as if it's the the same thing, and attorneys. Yeah have trust accounts <laughs> where they keep money in, in trust but it's got nothing to do with a trust or a family trust and you get two types of trusts, but, but we won't get into it all. Well, the, the normal ones, the inter vivos trust and the mortis causa trust but we won't, won't get into those things. But there's so, so many misconceptions and I want us just to quickly uh, get into one, of two, one or two of those and, and so let's look at, uh, have a look at them. So regarding trusts, I think the common idea regarding a trust that the typical South African, and maybe that's from our uh, ancestral, Culture is just that a trust is there to leave your property for those that, for, for our kids, and, and um, for them not to, as you say, stay clear of estate duty taxes and things like that. Don't keep it in your personal name, otherwise, you're going to be taxed upon that. So let's leave it for, for our kids and their kids in, in a trust. Um, how does a company work in, in terms of that? Um, you say it's better now to, to buy it in a company. How does that go on to future generations in, in the long term?
1: Yeah, so if we have a look at a company, um, you know um, a company has a shareholder and a director, or multiple shareholders and multiple directors. The director being the, or directors being the person or persons who need to take care of the operations of the company. We need to make sure that all compliance issues are up to date and the shareholder being the person who ultimately gets the benefit from this company. Now, if we have a look at a trust, uh, maybe just an interesting story about trust, which I think will just gives us a little bit of perspective. So the idea of a trust comes from just under a thousand years ago in the time of King Richard, the Lionhearted and the Crusades where he would often have to raise an army, well, to, to, to make war on the Saracens in Jerusalem and he would get his nobles together, um, you know, the knights, and they would need to head off to Jerusalem, but um, they couldn't do so on an airplane. This was a journey that had to go via a boat and then via land and, you know, it, it would take them a few years to, to get there and then to come back in which time obviously somebody needed to look after the business interests of these nobles because they would all have, um, well, big houses or castles to uh, and, 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 and multiple properties uh, that they would own. So they would leave these properties and, and, and basically all of their affairs in trust to certain people who they trusted to um, look after the, these business interests for the benefit of their families. So that is where the idea of a trust initially came from. And that is in general still the idea that we have now. So if we have a look at a trust, a trust has trustees who are these people that need to look after the property of the trust. And it's interesting that even in our trust law or common law you know we still say that the assets of the trust vest in these trustees in their capacity as trust not in the trust itself so um, so these people are the people who need to look after the, the properties but don't necessarily receive the benefit of what's happening in here the benefit goes to the beneficiaries of these trusts and these are normally in the context that we are talking about it today would typically be a family a husband and wife and normally you would say their kids and probably their, their kids' offspring at infinitum, So until um, eternity if, if, if need be. Um, so in, in the, the, the trust, the, the biggest advantage of the trust in, in that context is the fact that it's a legal entity. It cannot pass on. Um, Whereas with individuals, obviously we know there is a certain time where we won't be here anymore. Um, So the the biggest value is that it is a good estate planning tool Um, and it is a good way, a good place to leave our assets to um, our kids and our grandkids um, and and to go and build up multi-generational wealth. And um, and this is not the topic of today, but if you know you are a young couple, you haven't you haven't got kids or you've maybe just got kids, um, then it's also a very useful tool to leave your estate to for the benefit of your kids, because if your kids are minors, they cannot look after the money that is being left to them. It has to be. Um, parked in a certain uh, entity, and a trust is the perfect way to do that. So it can actually serve multiple uses at the same time. Uh, That's that's a great point, and I
0: would actually love to get into that, but that's not the scope of of today whatsoever. Uh, But just as a side note, I mean, you, you alluded or you called it estate planning. And I, I find that people do not plan whatsoever <laughs> what's going to happen with the estate. People die without a will, they uh, die intestate, which is not, not the right way to, to go about it whatsoever. And then, oh, they just get a simple will, but they've got a vast amount of, of assets and liabilities and, and things, and they didn't do actual estate planning. So it's so important to, to Firstly, just make sure you have a will, and secondly, if needs be, if you've got a, a large estate, if you've got a lo- large amount of interests and assets and liabilities, see someone and and do some estate planning, whether it's an auditor, uh, a, an attorney, or a financial advisor, make sure he is worth his salt because not all are created equal, and, and make sure those things are in place. Um, and, I, there might be some viewers now, we, we've talked about a lot of things. And some of, we, we went into the weeds of a few things and and people might be a little bit overwhelmed. Uh, okay, so we've got all this information, we've got, got all these ideas, I wanna get into investment property, I wanna do this or that, maybe get a company or, or, or a trust, whatever the case might be. And, as Tim Ferris usually says, he says, um, I'm not a doctor and I, and I don't play one on the internet. Now, I am an attorney and you are an auditor, but I mean, we're just having a, a general conversation and for someone to get proper financial advice regarding the, these things, where should they start? I mean, even for me, I don't always know what's the difference between a, a bookkeeper and an accountant and an auditor. Who must I approach? Where's the best way to, to start and, and talk about these things? And then also what, what I find now is we commonly work together as an attorney an auditor, and auditor and a financial advisor. Where, where does that fit in? So if you can just, for, for the common viewer or listener, where they can start, uh, how do the, these different people and
1: personas fit, fit in together? Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting one, Francho. Um So maybe just firstly on, on the topic of an accountant, uh, auditor, uh, and so on. Um, uh, generally in South Africa, uh, we have um, two, let's say, uh, large um, institutes of accountants and auditors. Um, the first one being SAICA, the South African Institute for Chartered Accounting. If you want to be and a chartered accountant, you need to register with them. Um, if you then want to um, give comfort to shareholders and, uh, and other parties on the financial statements of larger entities that need to be audited, you need to register with a body called IRBA, the independent regulatory board for auditors, Then you have the authority to sign off an audit report which basically says to the relevant parties looking at the financial statements of a company um, that you've had a look at the inner workings of what's going on here and that in your professional opinion you are happy with what you've seen, basically. Um, Not all chartered accountants are auditors. That's sort of a, a separate designation. You don't need a registered auditor to look after your affairs if you're investing in property. You can have a chartered accountant looking after that as well. Then we also have professional accountants who have the the same sort of skills um, on a slightly, um, let's say, I don't wanna even say more basic level, but the chartered accountant will go into a bit more detail. Uh, in their studies, you know, in in, in certain areas. Then the professional accountant, but these professional accountants are also professional guys and girls. They've got a a good qualification. They've um, written a standard setting exam and they are typically what we would call accountants. Um, And, you know, depending on who you are dealing with, you can go and choose an accountant or a chartered accountant or an auditor to help you if you are looking at your property investment. I would just say, make sure that the one that you're talking to has either dabbled a bit in property themselves or has quite a few clients who do this and whom he or she gives advice to. But preferably I would say, look for one that is a bit into property themselves because they are gonna understand the costs, the yields and all of those things. Um, that would be my biggest provisor, actually.
0: Um, and that actually, that's that's something that uh, Nasim Taleb says as well. Skin in the game. That that person also. I mean, if if you paid the price, if you paid the school fees, uh, you, you know this. There's just the difference when someone has has the necessary skin in the game a, a, as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. And maybe on your second point, uh, Francois. What so? What I see quite often in. Um, out there is that um, a uh, client who has a bit of wealth or is looking at building up a little bit of wealth has multiple advisors for different things, which is entirely correct. I mean, um, he'll do his life insurance and um, you know other um, insurances with his um, broker or his financial advisor. He will come to you for legal matters, for drawing up his uh, pre-nuptials, for for doing the the other basic things. Maybe when they want to start up or buy a company or something, they'll they'll have a chat to you. And then he or she will have a chat to their auditor about compliance things, about their accounting uh, and so on. But what quite often happens is that this happens in silos. So they're going to have a chat to the one and to the other one and to the other one. But won't, th- th- there won't necessarily be cohesion between these advisors. Um, and then what happens is that even though um, this is not um, what this person envisages or wants is that these, these people, none of them have the whole picture. And so they end up Um, Working against each other, not because they want to, but just because with the information that they have, um, they are trying to do what they think is fit and proper for their clients. But if you can get these advisors to just talk to each other, and there's cohesion in the process, that creates a lot of value. Because from my side, for instance, I then know my client has so much life insurance. He's going to bequeath this to this or that person or he wants to start his estate planning. Now he's put up a trust. Then I can advise him on what needs to go there, what we can still move. And from a legal um, point of view as well. So if all all those advisors are pulling in the same direction, it is definitely, ultimately, the situation that you want to be in because you, you are seriously at risk of neutralizing the effect of this advice if this happens in, in silos.
0: Um, that That's a, a great point and it makes a lot of sense. And we're we heading now in the, the final straight of the conversation. And to, to wrap this up, I get... Often I get comments, but okay, we, we talk about property and investment in, in property on, on most, if not all, of our channels and most of our talks and, and videos are, are about property. But what about investing just in, in financial products? And you made a comment the other day that you love the the aspect of, of financial discipline of property investment. So just, just to wrap this up, what are your, your thoughts on that? What do you love about the, the financial discipline of that? What do you do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so um, I think you know what you learn as you're carrying on and, and working with people who do investments is that not all people are created equal. We all have different levels of discipline, I would say, when it comes to our finances. Now, if I do an investment of, of sorts where I'm putting away money every month into a fund or into a retirement annuity or any financial sort of product, then if times get a bit tough, Um, It's very, especially if it's discretionary, you know, then I need to decide to make that payment every month. Then it's very... As times do. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, as they do, yeah, especially now. Or if I want to have a nice holiday over December, you know, then I start thinking, hey, but you know what? Maybe I should just skip this one month. Um, I'll make up for it next year and and let me have a good time with this money, which is not wrong, um, but you have the opportunity to do that. With property unfortunately or I would argue in some cases fortunately the monthly repayment from the bank goes off every month on the 31st or the 1st or the 2nd of the month. You do not have the option to skip a month and that creates a lot of financial discipline inherently because you know this thing is happening. I would rather use that money to go have a holiday this month, or not. It it is going to happen, and 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 that, you know, um, in the long term, I think is actually a nice tool um, to to keep your investment and to keep yourself honest yeah. about your investments.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's. Uh, I mean, it's an it's an awesome principle. And at the end of the day, um, we and and. I can't remember the exact quote now and who said it, but we, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall well, we, to the level of our systems. And if you've got the systems in place, you know your investments are, are going. And I mean, I've been in that situation as well where times get tough. So what do you do? You, you skip your investment. That's the first place where you think you can can cut a little bit of fat. Um, so having that financial discipline is, is just so important. Jonathan this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed it, loved it. Um, it was so fun talking about all, all these, these principles and I think we've, we can go on for, for hours more and I do believe we'll most probably have a, a version two and a version three where we might get into other concepts as well and maybe look at, at not the individual or residential property, but maybe a little bit more in commercial properties, uh, things like that. But that's a whole other conversation uh, whatsoever. Uh, As a last point, is there any ask or want or idea you want to leave with the listeners or viewers? Um, Just the
1: last point and, and then we can wrap it up. Yeah, Franco, firstly, from my side, once again, it's been an absolute privilege to to be here. Um, Yeah, thank you um, for that. And also looking forward to this being the first of of hopefully many. Um, I think the point that I would like to leave the viewers with is that a lot of what we've spoken about can um, seem a little bit heavy. Um, But I would say don't, 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 only look at that. If you have a passion for property, it's something that you like. It's something that gives you a little bit of energy. Go for it. Go and buy that first property. Do your homework. It doesn't need to be expensive. Just start. It can seem overwhelming at the start, but take it step by step. Talk to a good advisor or to talk to a good agent. Take the first step and go and buy that first residential property primary residence or go and buy your first investment property and go and test it out. Awesome. Then just as a, as a
0: last note where you can find you done is um, at BKD Auditors on, on Facebook. Um, he is so kind that they'll create a, a specific email address as well for, for the viewers. Um, if you want to contact contact them regarding this this podcast. It will be property at bkdo.co.za and their website is then obviously as well bkdo.co.za all of which would be in, in the show notes for, for all to see. Um, and then just to, to wrap this up, We just have to add that (laughs) this podcast is just for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of law, financial advice or services as a financial service provider including but not limited to the giving of legal or financial advice. Uh, No attorney and or financial advisor and client relationship is formed the use of this information and materials linked to this podcast is at the viewer's own risk the content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional legal and financial advice and that is so important it's just a general chat and we've shared lots of ideas but to get into the nitty-gritty obviously you've got a specific situation you've got specific finances your marital regime and please seek professional advice on those. Please do not disregard or delay in obtaining legal and financial advice from an attorney, financial advisor, or an auditor depending on and regarding your situation and your finances. Um, It's been an absolute blast and hope to see you in the next one. These sponsors make our podcast possible. So if you like us, like them. Uh, Please go and support them. Show your support, like, follow, subscribe on their social media channels. All are linked here in below. Visit their website and you are more than welcome to contact them if you need their assistance.